You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. This morning we're coming to question 27. So you can flip there. We'll we'll read it in a moment. Um, but just to remember where we are in the catechism, um, we really question 23 is setting the stage for this series that we're in, the series of questions. And it talks about Christ. What offices does Christ execute as our redeemer? And you know, we can even go back, and this is logically all connected to one another, and it's a great, they do a great job of logically, you know, one question flowing into the next. So we can talk about who is the redeemer of God's elect back in 21. But 23 basically says, what does Christ do as our redeemer? And it calls it uh, this term offices. We looked at these offices the last three weeks. Um, but what does he do? What does Christ do as our redeemer? And the answer, 23, Christ is our redeemer, executeth the office, offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. So he's a prophet. He's speaking truth. He's proclaiming salvation. He's the priest who is reconciling us to God, who's making atonement for our sins. He's the king who's ruling and reigning and defending and protecting us. And he's these three things, these three offices, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. And so today we're looking at what does it mean that he's prophet, priest, and king in humiliation, in his humiliation. And so we will jump to question 27. And as they answer this question for us, the Westminster Assembly, as they answer it, uh, we will then unpack it. So let's just read the question and answer here 27. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death on the cross, and being buried, and continuing under the power of death for a time. What I love about this series uh, of questions is that we've been spending our time looking at Jesus, putting our eyes upon Christ. And that's ultimately what our lives are about, looking to Christ, putting our eyes on Christ. And we're looking at specific details. What did Christ do to accomplish salvation for us? And so these two estates, we see the humiliation and then the exaltation will come next week. And this humiliation, we're looking at Christ and his ministry on earth primarily. Um, let's, Let's look at a couple scripture passages. Some of these you may see in the footnotes uh, in your uh, catechism. Some are others uh, that are related. But just to lay some of the biblical groundwork for where this question is going. Some of these key scripture. First, we'll start with Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So it has this language, he humbled himself. And as we speak of humiliation, it's not merely uh, embarrassment that Jesus experienced on earth. This is him humbling himself, humiliating himself, coming down to our level for us. And we see this here. He did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto, but made himself nothing, 
taking on human flesh for us. So this is his humiliation as Philippians speaks of it. Second Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So this is Christ becoming poor to make us rich. This becoming poor is the humiliation of Christ. Matthew 20. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to serve or came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, humbling himself to serve, not to be served as a king. John 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And we jump over to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And the key here is the word became flesh. The word is this eternal son of God. The second person of the Trinity became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and dwelt among us. This eternal son of God became flesh. We've spoken of the incarnation previously, but this is part of his humiliation. So here's some, there's some scripture laying the land, and we're just going to walk through each of these, second, these steps through the catechism and discuss them as we go one by one. So first, this first concept is humiliation. What does it mean, humiliation, to begin with? Because we think of this in that embarrassment sense, right? Christ was embarrassed uh, on earth, and that's not what it's speaking of primarily, even though there was a sense of being humiliated, particularly on the cross. It was a very humiliating way to die. Um, but this follows up on Philippians 2.8, where it says he humbled himself, as we said a few minutes ago. And this cataloging of his acts of humiliation has been done all the way from the ancient creeds until now. We look at the Apostles' Creed. Remember, the Apostles' Creed said, uh, he was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. It goes on and on, speaking about the humiliation, chronicling Christ's humiliation. The Nicene Creed, Nicene Creed says, for who us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. This humiliation recounting the steps, the acts of his humiliation is something the church has always done in, in formulating its creeds, saying, what did Christ do for us? And the Nicene Creed is explicit for us men and for our salvation, for us humankind and for our salvation. He humbled himself. And we remember he did this as our redeemer for the sake of redeeming us. This is not just merely a, a, an example of humility on display. This is for our sake that we would be saved living the life in our place. So what does the, the catechism say? A uh, number of elements here to his humiliation. First one is it consists in his being born and that in a low condition. He was born in a low condition. Um, I think first this does speak of the incarnation, as we mentioned a few minutes ago. This is the eternal son of God taking on human flesh. That is an act of humiliation where he's now binding himself to human nature. In Philippians uh, 2.7, in the ESV is translated, he emptied himself. I think scholars uh, make a good point to say this probably... uh, 
a better way to see this is to say he made himself nothing. It's not that he emptied himself of his divinity. um, And there's actually been a a, a long line of theologians in the last 150 years who take this phrase to say, uh, God emptied himself of his godness to become man. So he laid aside something of divinity in heaven and he came to earth and something less than divine. And that's a, 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 a serious heresy called uh, kenosis, um, the theory of kenosis, if you've ever heard of that. This is now something less than God is now being united to human flesh. But no, Philippians 2.7 isn't saying he emptied himself of divinity in order to um, uh, take to himself true humanity. It's he made himself nothing. Is he his, his, uh, considered himself nothing. He was willing to veil the divinity with humanity. He was willing to take upon himself our frail human flesh that he might redeem it. He didn't empty himself of divinity in any case, but his incarnation was still an act of humiliation. And then we see his actual birth itself. Uh, and commentators will say this. His actual birth was a, uh, a humble way to be born. Luke 2, 7. We, you've heard this a hundred times. And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there's no place for them in the inn. Now we can get into what does this mean, the inn and all this kind of stuff. It probably doesn't mean what, what, what uh, the traditional tales of Christmas uh, say it means. But the point is, he wasn't born in a proper place. He was born in a low place. He was born and placed in a, in a, a trough of animals. He was not born in any respectable way. He was not born as a king would be born. His, his birth itself was very humble. Nobody noticed except the angels on high, the shepherds out in the field. This was not some big celebration for all of God's people yet. It was a humble birth. So he was born in a low condition. And that was his state with his family, a low state as a child. And the, and the catechism says he was made under the law. And this, this really comes out of Galatians 4, 4 and 5, and which Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So to encourage a little bit more interaction here, stop, to stop lecturing a little bit. What does that mean, born under the law? What's the significance of that here in Galatians 4, but also um, as our catechism reflects that language? Yeah, right. So, so he, he's God who, who is the lawmaker, the lawgiver, and now he's subjecting himself to it. Yeah, that's great. That's a great aspect to it. Very good. What else? That's right. That's right. Yeah, so... Yeah, no, that's right. He was born a Jew, um, and he was born under the obligations of the Mosaic law, right? The obligations of circumcision, the obligations of these other things that were all pointing them to Christ and uh, showing them their inability to fulfill it. But now he was the one who was going to fulfill it. And so he was born under the Mosaic law. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know if there's if, where it's a statement in anybody's statement of faith. Um, okay, let's see it. It's just a local church. It's not really a penny of the church. We believe that the Son, Jesus Christ, 
Christ gave up his privileges as God to become human and live on earth over 2,000 years ago. Yeah. It's unclear. That's, that's the entire statement. Right, right. And so give up his privileges to become human, not take on human flesh. Yeah, yeah. Give up his privileges, not to give up his glory. Gave up. And so it's imprecise here, and it may very well. I don't know. That's what right. Yeah, and at best, it's sloppy. Um, at worst, it's, it's kenosis. That's right. Um, it arose in British Anglicanism, uh, mid-1800s is where it came from. And I think in, in England, it's, it's probably more prominent than it has been in America. Um, but it's certainly in America. Um, we can see, we see vestiges of it in, in scholarship. People just don't make distinction. That's right. They wouldn't even think. That's, that's right. This statement of faith, if anything, is just saying, I don't even know that this distinction exists. Right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it does. It's, it's a lack of understanding of our, just the historic Christian faith, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's good. It diminishes reverence and awe, and it makes Jesus just like us. Yeah, yeah, that's right. What's the distinction? That's right. Yes. Why would we worship someone just like us? Right, right. That's right. If, if he's not truly divine, then what, is he just a man? Right, that's exactly right. Exactly right, and then his his, his sacrifice um, of of infinite worth. If he's not divine, if he's just a man, is his sacrifice is only for a man. If it's a sacrifice of a God man, then it's of infinite worth. So we, all kinds of questions they've left un, unansered. I think that made under the laws a, a great uh, example of you know, humiliating himself as well. So he, he could have come in and been a great ruler. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He could have come as the king who could then implement a new law over the people. But no, he came under the law. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's part of, that's exactly why this called part of the humiliation of Christ. I think when we, when we talk about under the law, y'all are hitting on some, some great topics here. Um, subject to a couple, a couple of things. Um, Charles Hodge lays it out systematically like this. First, he's subject to the covenant of works. That covenant of works, which is the law that we're all under, we're all born under the covenant of works with Adam as our representative. And the covenant of works says, do this and you shall live. We're all born to say, be perfect and you will attain eternal life. Or if you fail, you will uh, suffer eternal judgment. So he came subject to the moral law of God as we are all born subject to the moral law of God. And we all fail because Adam is our representative and because we ourselves fail. But he was made under the law and without Adam as his representative though. And so that's how he could go and in his perfection, fulfill it on our behalf. That's another topic for another day. But he was subject to the covenant of works as a way to eternal life. Second, he was subject to the Mosaic law. Uh, and being subject to the, uh, to the Mosaic law, he fulfilled it for the Old Testament people. He was the one who came that the law pointed towards. It told Israel, you can't do it. We're waiting for that Messiah to come who can do it, who will accomplish it, who will give you salvation that the law speaks of. And so he came subject to the Old Testament law. And because he fulfilled it, no longer do we celebrate the ceremonies. Do we celebrate, or are we bound by the, the legal um, confines of the people of Israel? Because he fulfilled them. And no longer is Israel as a people, um, uh, bound by the Old Testament law because it's been fulfilled in Christ. Um, and that's to distinguish between, we're all still under the moral law, as we said a moment ago. We're all still under the, our obligation to God morally, but not in the ceremonial way or in the judicial way under the Old Testament law. Um, and then the third aspect, he's subject to the law 
um, now as a moral, uh, the moral law as a role of duty, right? Not just the moral law as, as, as fulfilling that in order to receive eternal life as he did, but now the moral law is just our guide. It is our, it is now calling us to live in a particular way. So he is the highest example of what it looks like to fulfill the law or to obey the law, to live a life of perfectly honoring your parents, of not stealing, of telling the truth, of all these things. He is the example. So he's born under the moral law as a rule of duty and as an example for us, and he fulfilled it. So he was born under the law. He assumed all these obligations, kept them perfectly, received the reward for completion. And we'll talk about that next week a little bit more as we look at um, uh, is exaltation. What does the exaltation of Christ mean and, and why was he exalted and so forth? Um, so made under the law. Comments, concerns, questions there? Yeah. There's just something about him um, coming to being Israel. I mean, that was his real purpose, right? Yeah. Being the, the Jews. Mm-hmm. And then it extended it to the rest of us. So That's right. I mean, yeah. Yeah, no, no, that's right. I mean, he says, for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. He says, but the design at the beginning, we even see in, in echoes in the Abrahamic covenant, the design was always for it to expand to the Gentiles, but for its time, he kept it with his people of Israel. Um, and yeah, that's right. He came to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He did. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Very good. So next, uh, the next phrase uh, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life. So he did not have a privileged position in this life. He suffered under the broken conditions of this world in the way we all do. He had friends who died, Lazarus, and he wept. He was mocked and ridiculed, not even just for being the son of God or being God in flesh or being the redeemer of God's elect. He was just ridiculed, probably bullied at school by his friends, right? Made fun of, like everybody goes through these experiences, Christ went through those experiences as well. Um, Isaiah 53, 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So he lived a life of difficulty, of misery. Um, John 11, mentioned with Lazarus, Jesus wept. He was not just sitting above the suffering and the difficulties of this world, looking down upon it, saying, it's not going to touch me. No, it did. He experienced the grief and the difficulty of life. In Luke 9, 58, Jesus said to his disciples, foxes have holes, birds birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So he was a, a, a nomad. He didn't have a home. He suffered a difficult and miserable life, let's say it in, in a sense. So he suffered the miseries of this life, just like you and me. This speaks to his humanity. He suffered all of the difficulties of this life. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just wondering how to put it together. On one hand, you mentioned Jesus wept, he had feelings, and, and yet many people believe that God, the Father, doesn't have feelings. Mm. unmoved. Right. So how do you put That's right, yeah. So we, we talk about... Um, the, the, the theological term is the impassibility of God. So um, 
passion here as a sense of suffering and uh, a sense of of being moved, overcome by emotion. So God is impassionate, meaning he's not overcome by an emotional sense. So we speak of God in his essence, who God is, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, in their essence as God. There's no emotional state that's overcoming them. They're not driven by emotions. God doesn't change. God is. And so emotions really are a result of change over time, of events happening to us, and so we're changing. Um, And so... So we have to say God is not changed by, um, um, by, by things happening to him that are unexpected or things that he doesn't like. It's not that he is now changing and having emotions that overcome him. However, we see God is love. Um, God uh, pours out wrath. So what, what does that mean about God's nature? It's not saying God is overcome by wrath and he's like a, a uh, uncontrollable man in a drunken rage. That's not what it's saying. But this is a righteous, a measured wrath upon sin. And so he's impassionate in the sense that he's not overcome with his, his anger and, and doing something in such a way that's inappropriate. Um, but we can say, in a sense, there's something of an analogy to emotion in God. Now, when we come to uh, the second person of the Trinity being incarnate, we can see Jesus wept. And we're going to, what we say there is not necessarily that there's some, um, that the second person of the Trinity is overcome with emotions and is weeping. We're going to say Jesus Christ, according to his humanity, suffered and wept. We're not saying Jesus, according to his divinity, suffered and wept. Um, So we want to make that distinction with Jesus Christ, the incarnate God. He's suffering according to his humanity, um, but according to his divinity, it's not as if he's being changed or anything of that sort is is overcoming him. Does that begin to answer your questions, push back, concern? Maybe I should press it after. Okay, great. Well, I'd love to to hear more. We we can do that. Yeah. Misery misery is one of those words the uh, catechism likes to use a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was reading it as, you know, post fall you have sin, you have consequences. Right. Uh, one can be, you know, miserated by their consequences. Mm-hmm. But uh, we can also suffer the negative effects of someone else's sin That's right. against us. That's right. And any attempt to uh, eradicate or reverse the, the curse is new. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Misery seems to me to be not just the consequence of one's sins, but the fact that we're all bearing consequences of other people's sins, plus our own sins, plus the futility that comes with the curse of even trying to solve all this in yeah. a way. That's, that's well said. No. Yeah, that's very well said. And, and even to the extent where sin entering the world broke creation in a sense. All creation is groaning. And so there's sickness. There's, you know, um, you know, all kinds of things broken with the world itself. And we experience those miseries as well. So I think, I think that's well said. And certainly Jesus experienced that. Exactly right. Yes. Yes. Very good. And that's part of his humiliation. God subjecting himself being joined to human nature to these miseries on our behalf. Uh, The next one is uh, the wrath of God made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life and the wrath of God. 
And this wrath of God, it's the central theological underpinning. He uh, suffered the wrath of God because our sin, the sins of his people were imputed to him. And he suffered the wrath of God for our sin. He didn't suffer the wrath of God abstractly or for his own sin, but he suffered the wrath of God for our sin. Um, Our sin was imputed to him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 speaks of this. For our sake... He made him, Father made Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. So he didn't know sin himself. He didn't commit sin, but God made him to be sin. And that's the imputation of our sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So because our sin is imputed to Christ, Christ became our sin for us. We're now the righteousness of God because our sin is now taken care of at the cross. Isaiah 53:10 Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It's the will of the Lord to crush him not out of some kind of arbitrary and capricious and malevolent sense of I want to destroy my son. This was the wrath of God crushing him out of love Christ willingly submitted to for us. Hebrews 2, 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That term, make propitiation, is to appease the wrath of God, is to suffer the wrath of God, to, the best word, satisfy the wrath of God for us, to make propitiation for our sins. And how do you satisfy the wrath of God? You receive the just condemnation of the wrath of God, which was poured poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross. He suffered it for his people, assuaging God's wrath. And so it's no longer turned upon those who commit it, but it's turned upon the one who stands in our place as our substitute. So now we're getting not just to general humiliation with human nature. Now we're getting to a special redemptive humiliation that Christ underwent for his people to save us. So he under, uh, he received the wrath of God. Um, Let me do the next one because it goes hand in hand and then we can pause for a minute. And the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross. And these two really go hand in hand because where was the wrath of God poured out? It was poured upon, out upon him on the cross. And we see this. Uh, the death on the cross was, was an intentional action, a voluntary action of Christ to lay down his life for his sheep. First Peter 2 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So there's again that imputation. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And that's a very intentional use of the term tree. Could have said cross. He says tree to link us back to Deuteronomy chapter 21 that speaks of trees here. Um, Let me read this. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, he is to be put to death and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. So the Old Testament said being hanged on a tree is a curse from God. Being cursed upon a tree. 
And then Hebrews 2 makes this even, or sorry, Galatians 3 makes this even more explicit. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So paraphrasing there, uh, Deuteronomy 21, saying Christ received the wrath of God being cursed upon the cross for us, that we would no longer bear our sins. It's an amazing thing. We speak of it all the time. We say it all the time right? Jesus Christ died for me. But this was an intentional plan of Christ, of the Godhead from before the foundation of the world, that he would willingly humiliate himself for us to save us on the cross. Okay, we'll stop there. Wrath, cross, comments. Yeah, Rob. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. And, and you probably were reading between the lines. I was trying to, to um, uh, have a brief polemic against that a few minutes ago, because it's not this cosmic child abuse. It's not that the father says, all right, son, get down there and I'm going to, you know, beat you. And uh, then we're going to save our people. No, this was um, part of the, the, the plan of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world, decreeing, deciding, this is how we will save a people. And the father elects a people and the son willingly, it becomes incarnate and dies for us. And then the spirit applies that work to us. And so this is a part of the, the design that Christ um, willingly did this. And this was, uh, this was not uh, child abuse and there's more to be said, but um, I'm not sure if you wanted to say more, that follow up there. But this was a willing act of the son to save a people. And, and it is important, I think, highlighting that too. I mean, why is this? Because of love, right? But why is all this? Because he loves not only his son, the intra-Trinitarian love, but also loving his people as well. John, do you have your hand? That's right. And so we are faced with the dilemma. And also, even sometimes it's like always joking, being really jovial, smiling Jesus, and always laughing. And when we look at scripture, scripture has different colors of these words. It sees passions as a negative thing, as you said, or we being overcome by emotions. And it sees just laughing and joking all the time is actually negative, you know, like cool. So it's, I think that sometimes we come up across that mm-hmm. culture has specific Yeah, and, and it's a good point that um, we just need to be careful with the words we use and what we're defining them, you know, how we're defining them and how we're using them. I think it's a, that's an important point. Yeah, that's good. 
What else? The wrath of God, curse, death on the cross. But Jesus did laugh, right? Yes, yes, I, I believe so. Yes, he did laugh. Okay. Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, and that's a, that's a great point. Okay, so we're, we're walking through the, the life of Christ here as, through this humiliation. So his born, being made under the law, uh, the miseries of his life. And now we come to the wrath of God. Uh, I didn't go to this next one. The cursed death on the cross. And his humiliation isn't over after the cross. And this, uh, the last phrase here is being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. So Christ, after his death, was buried. And we, you know, historically we can go to the Gospels and speak of this. Um, the, the, the new to- tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and, and on and on. Um, and he continued under the power of death for a time. And we, we can go to many places. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, um, uh, Paul's writing really the core of the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So there's this time between death and resurrection that he was truly dead. And so, okay, what do we mean? Does it mean God died? No. Does this mean, uh, so the divinity did not die, but the humanity did die. The body of Jesus Christ was truly dead. And now we also believe that our souls do not uh, die or extinguish or fall asleep in anything like that. So the human soul of Jesus Christ and the divinity of Christ were not dead, but his body was dead. He suffered and experienced true, real human death on the cross and continued under the power of death for a time, for these three days. Um. I'll stop there for a minute. Um, there's one other topic I want to hit in a, in a second, but I'll stop there. Um, yes? Um, the power of death, I assume, after the cross he was buried for those three days. Um, is it uh, your belief that uh, he went into hell? Because I know there's some controversies right. that Christians believe that. Right. That he descended into hell. Right. And is that a description of the death he experienced you know, Right. Very good. That's the next topic I'm going to go to. So very good. So yes, we'll, we'll perfect segue there. So the question is, okay, what happened during this time? Um, and we read in the Apostles' Creed, uh, he died and was buried. He descended into hell. Uh, the third day he rose again. So this language, what does it mean to descend into hell? And I think we get some help here with our larger catechism. Um, and I'll read it and we'll, we can discuss this Um, The larger catechism says, wherein consists Christ's humiliation after death? So it actually has four questions on our one question. So it goes like during life, you know, his his death and after death. Um, How does his, what is, wherein does his humiliation consist in each of these phases of his life? Um, The shorter catechism lumps it all together. But it goes here, wherein consists Christ's humiliation after his death? Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried, continuing in the state of of the dead, 
and under the power of death till the third day, which hath been otherwise expressed in these words, he descended into hell. So the catechism is offering a commentary on our, uh, the Apostles' Creed. He descended into hell. There, is, um, there are different views on that, as, as you mentioned. Um, the Roman Catholic Church would say uh, Jesus Christ went to hell during that time preaching. Um, others would say there's some kind of descent into hell where, where the damned are, and he's some kind of preaching, whether preaching judgment or preaching release. Uh, maybe some say he's going to a, a kind of a nether realm where the saints from the Old Testament are waiting in limbo for Christ to rise from the dead, and so Christ goes to them and preaches release to them. Um, all of this is on very, very nebulous, and I would say non-existent scriptural basis. Um, one second, Rob. Um, and I, the, the biblical foundation for that is, is not there. There's a couple places that people will, will pin it on. Um, the Roman Catholic Church has some apocryphal language or books that they'll go to um, and, and argue from that. We don't see those as authoritative, so we won't go there. Um, but First uh, Peter has a line about Christ preaching to the spirits in prison, and people say that's him descending into hell. I don't think that's uh, the best way to make sense of that. I don't think it's even a possible way to make sense of that, um, or a reasonable way to make sense of it. So um, that's not historically what the Reformed tradition has said, that Christ physically or even spiritually went to hell and preached in hell. Um, what he descended into hell is, um, is a statement um, well, let me get to Rob's question, and then I'll, and I'll go back and describe what's going on in that statement. Okay. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, if he had to go be in hell the whole time he was in the grave, then you're right. He said, you'll be with me in paradise. And that also is our sense that Christ's spirit, his, or his soul, um, did not die. And his soul ascended to heaven, even though his body was in the grave. In the same way, when we die, our souls are with Christ, even though our bodies still lie in the grave. So yes, that's exactly right. So what does it mean? He descended into hell. Uh, There's a couple couple things, uh, points to make here. One is um, the oldest versions of the Apostles' Creed actually don't have this line or they don't have, um, he, he was buried. And it seems to me there were two, and to scholars, seems that there were two uh, traditions of the Apostles' Creed going around. Some say he died and was buried. Some that he died and descended into Hades, descended into the depths of the earth, which is what that word really means in the, in the original Latin. Um, so he, des- he descended into the depths of the earth. And then over time, they kind of conflated and they didn't pick one, they kept them both. So it sounds like there's two different things happening. He died, he was buried, and then he went into hell. Where I think historically, the best way to understand these is these are explaining the same thing. Being buried, descending into hell, descending into the depth of the earth, going into the the tomb. Um, It's describing the same event. Um, And the Reformed tradition would put a little bit of a spin on that. And Calvin particularly would say, descending into hell was that receiving the wrath of God. It was on the cross, as you mentioned, on the cross, receiving the wrath of God. It was as if he was cut off from his father. It was as if he was experiencing the depth of hell that our sins deserve. And so he did experience that. He did experience the extreme, uh, the, the judgment of God on our behalf. 
And so that, if, if the judgment of God is not hell, I don't know what hell is. But it's not that he physically went to a place or even spiritually went to the place of hell. It's that it is he experienced hell on our behalf. And I think textually it's best to understand this as buried, descended to hell are really the same thing, just said in different words. And you'll notice um, in, our, in our bulletins, when we do the Apostles' Creed, we're not doing it this morning, there's a little footnote um, below it. And it's this language here. Um, it, it comes from larger catechism 50. Um, he's being buried, continuing in the state of the dead and under the power of death until the third day. So we explain that uh, in the apostles creed when we say it here, um, bringing this catechism language in, because this is what the catechism tells us. Um, so we, we, I, I do, uh, submit to and agree with this. All right. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Go ahead. Oh, hold on. Hold on one second. Yeah. Up here. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> We'll go ahead, Sandra. <laughs> um, so I was wondering if this correlates to him kind of fulfilling what it says in Romans that the wages of sin is death. Mm-hmm. So that's why, you know, the death is probably important. That's right. I, I'm wondering what the three days had to do with mm-hmm. because of, this, you know, the sign of the Jonah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the significance of three days. I don't know for sure. Um, and there are speculations. There's some like Jewish traditions that say the spirit hovers for two days, and on the third day the spirit leaves. And so maybe it's it's to prove to all the Jews that you know he's really dead uh, physically to prove that yeah he was not going to be resuscitated um, as long enough. I don't know exactly, but we can say all those things are true, that, that he was dead in the grave and could not have been resuscitated. Um, he was truly dead, and that time shows us that. I think Lazarus, four days? Is that, is that right? Um, so what does that mean? I don't know. Why was Jesus not in the tomb a week? I don't know. Um, I'm not sure I can answer that with specificity, but, um, but yeah, there's, I, that's the, probably the best I can do there. Yeah. on the cross and he, he said the words it is finished mm-hmm. and that's it seems to me enduring the eternal wrath of God right God. that's right and then it says he gave up the spirit can you flesh that out because you were saying the spirit went to be with the Lord and his flesh was you know it descended into hell in a sense buried mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so giving up the spirit yeah, I, th- I think it's speaking of that moment of death for all of us when our spirit is, um, is, is taken from our body in a sense. I'm not saying it's like internal to us or something, but as the body is dead, the spirit is still alive. And so that's where the spirit does go to heaven with the father, um, where Christ's spirit went. So he gave up the ghost, right? The old translation, he gave up his spirit and, um, and that's where the body dies, but the spirit, which is truly him, like both of these two parts, we're, we, we're dichotomous, we believe we're body and soul. Um, and so the body is dead, but the soul is not dead. And so I think that's the, the point of his death, his physical body dying there, but the, the soul is not dead and the soul then ascends into heaven in the same way it will happen with us. If, yeah. If you're a believer of Christ, but if you're not, the spirit goes to... That's right. Exactly. So if you're, if you're not in Christ, your, your spirit goes to hell at that point. There, there is a preliminary time in hell you'll spend before the final judgment. You're, even unbelievers, bodies rise, body and soul are reunited, and then you will be cast body and soul then into hell 
for a while, it's just going to be spirits in hell. But then um, body and soul reunited after the final judgment. Physical bodies are in hell. Um, so you're right. Believer and unbeliever, we have the different, um, different uh, ends after our death. That's exactly right. Jonathan, did you have... Well, since I the timing of the three days in the grave, isn't it amazing that it perfectly lines up all those holy days of the priest and the priest? That's right. The very moment Christ was rising, the priest was waving the sheep of the first forgotten. That's right. That's exactly right. Christ is that often. They were doing the water ceremony, I think, at the same time. That's right. Or, or no, they were doing that when he was preaching about the water. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. like all the events in Christ's life just coincide with the system of the day. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and it, that's right. And the eighth day, the first day of the week, you know, all this imagery and symbolism coming together um, with so much rich biblical material. It's you're exactly right. So, Actually, well, with regard to the Sabbath, I've read that he was working on the seventh day in the grave in a way, and then he ended his father's rest. Yeah. And that was that's some of the basis for the shit. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's, that's good. have to unpack that a little bit more. Um, we are over time. Very good. Um, let me make sure, just, just briefly say, like, we're talking a lot about Christ, but what are the implications for us? Like, this is our Savior. Like, we behold him. I mean, today we talk about looking and beholding and, and, um, and resting in the work of God for us. This is it. We look to Christ. And so this should give us great hope. And then we're also called to imitate him, as Philippians talk about. We're to imitate him, not in the redemptive sense of, you know, our deaths will redeem anybody, but we imitate him in his humiliation, in his, in his humility of being humble, of considering others more important than ourselves. So this points us in that direction as well. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your work of giving us Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for us, who humiliated himself, humbled himself so that we would be made rich. We thank you, Father, for this great joy, for our great Savior. May he be proclaimed and known by all across this earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.com.